The year was 1943. Bulgaria had aligned itself with Germany to escape destru destruction from the Nazi war machine. The government consented to German demands to deport all Bulgaria's Jews. The German government claimed the Jews would be taken to work camps where they would be allowed to redeem themselves for their alleged crimes. The, de the deportations were to be set on March 10th. The trains rolled into the country, ready to take their human cargo to death camps. It seemed as if Bulgarian Jews were doomed to the same fate as all the other Jews of Europe. Jews. Instead, virtually the entire populace united to save the Jews. <clears throat> the opposition was led by the Bulgarian church. If we, the church, allow the Jews to be deported, we will betray our most sacred obligations, the Reverend Boris Haralampiev stated. We must help. The Bulgarian Orthodox Church will stand up for the Jews, Bishop Metropolitan Kirill announced. Kirill sent a letter to the king of Bulgaria begging him to have pity on the Jews. He also told the chief of police that he would not accept the government's decision to deport the Jews. When the fateful day arrived, Kirill and crowds of Bulgarians arrived at the center and told the frightened Jews, my, this is the, this is the metropolitan bishop, my children, I will not let this happen to you. I will lie down on the railroad tracks and will not let you go. Kirill met with the king and told him his immortal soul was threatened by this action. Crowds protested across the country. Whether it is one or 1,000 Jews, the Nazis can only shoot me once, a priest explained. Farmers in the countryside threatened to lie on rail tracks so the cards could not pass. Bakers in the cities had hid Jews in their ovens. King Boris backed down and rescinded the order. After two months of uncertainty, Bulgaria's frightened Jews returned to their homes, much to the dismay of the Nazis. I am firmly convinced that the prime minister and the government wish and strive for a final and radical solution to the Jewish problem, said the German ambassador to Bulgaria. However, they are hindered by the mentality of the Bulgarian people who lack the ideological enlightenment we have. The Fuhrer, this is Hitler, was furious in a meeting with King Boris. He demanded the deportation of all Bulgarian Jews. Hitler went into a rage when I refused his demand, the king recalled. Screaming like a madman, he attacked me in a torrent of accusations and threats. It was horrible, but I did not surrender one inch. Boris calmly told the enraged German leader Bulgaria needed the Jews for labor projects. Hitler did not believe the king, but he did not want to risk losing a wartime ally. He therefore accepted as long as all Jewish men were relocated from cities to labor camps. Some 20,000 Jews were indeed moved from the cities to the countryside, but no one was ever sent outside the borders. The deportations from Bulgaria never took place. As a result, Bulgaria was the only country in Eastern Europe whose Jewish population remained the same throughout the Holocaust. It was known as the miracle of the Jewish people among the Jews of Bulgaria, but the episode did not receive the attention it warranted. I was trying to decide last week if I could just be done with the series of I've already gone three weeks and that's a long time. But I just sat there. We went through Jesus teachings and we looked at the history of the early church and, and then Constantine and then the history of why we call ourselves Anabaptists. And we had just about five minutes to talk about the kingdom of God at the end there. And I thought we have to go one more week and finish on the kingdom of God, because for us to understand True Anabaptist theology and why we believe what we believe. We have to understand the two kingdom theology, the two kingdom um, idea. So let's all turn 
to Luke this morning. And I have a lot to get through, so I'm going to speak quickly as fast as I can without slurring, hopefully. Luke chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6. It's good to see young men with their Bibles and turning. Luke chapter 4, 5 and 6. And the devil, and this is speaking of Jesus, taking him up unto a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this power will I give thee, and all the glory of them, for that is delivered to me, and to whomever, whoever I will give it. We see here at Jesus' ministry a, uh, a concept here. The kingdoms of this world, the devil knew this concept. The devil is in and understands this power. In fact, he even says he has a certain amount of power. He says it's been delivered to me and I can give it to whoever I want to. And he said all this power, all this, I think the Greek word is uh, exousia, however you say that, exousia. Um, He says all these kingdoms and he showed them to Jesus in a moment of time, all the kingdoms of this world. And he told Jesus, I will give it to you if you will bow down and worship me. This idea of a kingdom. Turn to Mark chapter 1. You know, so much of the time we think of Christianity, that Jesus came for a purpose. And we think that Jesus came to make a way for us to get to heaven. Um, I've heard it referenced as a save me gospel. Uh, Brother Mike was referencing that it becomes very individualistic in our Bible study time. And we sometimes lose the focus of what Jesus' purpose was. Yes, Going to heaven is part of the focus, but let's read in Mark chapter one and verse 14. <clears throat> now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. <clears throat> Notice in this two verses here a couple of concepts first of all he was preaching the gospel we all reference the gospel what's the gospel we wonder what the gospel is and you'll hear a lot of people reference it as the death and burial and resurrection of christ but what was the gospel to jesus the gospel was the kingdom of god if we keep reading notice what he says the time is fulfilled this means it's also translated in other places the same greek word as translated complete the time is completed it is now come to hand everything in prophecy has come to this moment in time and now it is here and the kingdom of god is starting and being preached the time is fulfilled and then notice the next portion of the verse and the kingdom of god is at hand for years i've wondered what does that mean at hand I think it's an idiom when we say something's at hand, this tape is at hand. It's right here. I can get it at any point. It's actually this Greek word is translated in many other places as draw near. Uh, the kingdom of God has drawn near to you. Same Greek word is at hand. So think of this. Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled. All the prophecy has come to this moment of time and the kingdom of God has drawn near. In other words, in times past, it wasn't near. But now this kingdom has come near to us. And Jesus is offering it. And then the, the solution is to repent. Repent simply means to turn a 180 degree from serving yourself, serving Satan. And it says, believe this good news, the good news of the kingdom. <clears throat> Let's quickly go over to Luke chapter four. 
in verse 43. Luke 4.43. And it says, uh, verse 42, He departed and went into the desert place, and the people sought him and came to him and stayed him that he should not depart from this. And he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. Notice this. They wanted him to stop, take a rest. And he was pressed in his spirit. I must. I need. This is something he saw as a need to preach the kingdom. And then he said, for this purpose, I was sent. God had sent him for a purpose. When he left the throne of God, God gave him a purpose to preach the kingdom of God. That is the gospel. So. Throughout all the Gospels, we see Jesus preaching the kingdom of God. He goes into cities. He preaches. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Sermon on the Mount begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It says, Blessed are you when you're persecuted, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle, gives us the model prayer. The Lord's Prayer. What does it say in there? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As if the two are synonymous. When the kingdom of God comes to this earth, his will is done. If if God's will is being done in your life, then the kingdom of God is being built. <clears throat> he sent out his disciples and he said, preach the kingdom of God, heal the sick. Uh, and he goes on with this list and it says they went out and preached the gospel. You see the synonymous of the two. He told them to preach the, the kingdom and they went out and preached the gospel. The beginning of Acts, Jesus is dead. He's risen from the grave. He spends 40 days. Can you imagine 40 days with Jesus after he's died and risen? And what is the topic does he choose to preach on? The kingdom of God. He spends four. I I would love to have been in that seminary, you know, 40 days hearing Jesus preach on the kingdom of God. In Acts 8, Philip goes down to Samaria and it says he's preaching the kingdom of God. In Acts 18, uh, Paul comes to Ephesus. It says he spends three months preaching the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. At the end of Acts, when Paul gets to Rome, he's preaching on the kingdom of God. And the very last verse, the very last verse in Acts, which we just finished, says this. uh, Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus with all confidence. No man forbidding him, period. The end of the book. The kingdom of God is a central theme of the New Testament. And somehow we have and can easily be persuaded to make the gospel about heaven. And not that it isn't, but it's about heaven. I like how John D bringing heaven down to earth now, preparing us for heaven. I won't go through all these verses, but the kingdom of God was foretold through prophecy we read that and we discussed it last sermon about the, the, the um, statue. And it says, in the days of those kings shall God set up a kingdom. Uh, how many of you know the passage that says, um, uh, for unto us a child is born. We know that at Christmas time. It says, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He shall be called the prince of peace. Prince means ruler. Um <clears throat> It talks about a prophecy on the day right days before Jesus died. It says, behold, your king will come riding on a donkey. 
meek and humble. Your king, Israel, will come. And in Isaiah, it even talks about this future kingdom saying they will beat their swords into plowshares. They will beat their swords, instruments of death, into instruments of life. Let's turn to Luke chapter 16. There's many models. Uh, many Christians believe in the kingdom of God, but there's it's what you do with it at the end of the day. Did the kingdom of God start all the way back at when Israel started? Did the kingdom of God start with Jesus? Did the kingdom of God, is it something that's put off into the future? I think we need to use the scripture to define it for us. In Luke chapter 16, verse 16 Jesus clearly tells us when the kingdom of God started. It says the law and the prophets were until John. Now, the law and the prophets are just a simple way to say the Old Testament. We have the law. We have all the books of Moses and all the things he gave us. And then we have the prophets. We have Isaiah and we have Jeremiah and we have all of those books there. Ezekiel. So the law and the prophets, this is an era. This is a time. They were until John. Now listen what the next part of the verse says. Since that time, or since John, the kingdom of God is preached. And notice the next part. Every man is pressing into it. Which tells me it's happening now. We can't press into the kingdom if it's just something in the future. It also tells me it's not something that was around in the past, not to its fullest extent. Something new was happening. It says the law came by Moses and grace and truth came by Jesus. Something had changed in the New Testament and it's called the kingdom of God. So we need to talk about a kingdom. We need to understand this distinctive to understand why... um, why we believe what we do. You know, are Anabaptist things like non-resistance, loving our enemies, not voting, not getting involved in government, are those just add-ons? Do you ever feel like they're just add-ons? Like, the real Christian faith out there is defined for us. As long as we believe in Jesus as the Son of God, then, you know, we'll go to heaven. And all this other stuff we do, like not non-conformity to the world and non-resistance, those are just add-ons, you know? Like a little higher calling. Are those just add-ons? Or are they something greater? Now, every kingdom has four distinctives. Every kingdom has... Well, you guys help me out. A king. king. Okay, great. What else does a kingdom have? People. People. What else? Domain. A domain, okay. Yep, I'll put that domain. And what else? Laws. Laws. Yeah, those, I mean, you can think about that right now in America. We have all those things. We don't call him King Biden, but um, he's pretty much that, right? Uh, we have people. We know who they are. We're American citizens. We have a domain. We know where the American borders are. It even skips over Canada and picks back up Alaska. And we have, we have a constitution, right? We have laws that define the constitution. Let's turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Let's start off with that first one, the king. 
John chapter 18 and verse 33. Okay, so they've been they've been um, beating Jesus. They've been um, well. That I don't know that they've been beating him. Sorry, but he's come in. They've detained him, um, and they brought him into the judgment hall of Pilate. Verse thirty-three. Then Pilate entered in the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said, "Are you the King of the Jews?" What a question. This is the time we can really get some answers. He asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, are you saying this of yourself or did someone else tell you this? <clears throat> Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So he asks him, what are you asking me for? This is your people who have brought me you here. <clears throat> Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, for him to say my kingdom, would he have to be a king? <laughs> I mean, you can't say you own a kingdom if you don't aren't a king. So my kingdom is not of this world. What else do we learn? It's not an earthly kingdom, he says. If my kingdom were of this world or if it were a earthly kingdom, I would be asking my servants, my citizens, my people to be fighting so that I wouldn't be delivered to you, Pilate. That's what I'd be doing right now. If that were the constitution, if that were the laws of my kingdom, you bet I'd be getting them coming after you right now. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world or I'd be asking them to fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from this world. It's not from hence. Pilate said, are you a king then? Do you, do you hear that? That, that uh, almost like your kingdom's not of this world. So are you even really a king? You ever feel like that sometimes as Christians? We're like, well, yeah, Jesus is a spiritual kingdom. And, and, and almost this little nagging question, is he really even really a real king like we're used to? That's what Pilate's carnal mind thought. <clears throat> Jesus answered, you say that I am a king to this end. Was I born and for this cause came I into the world? He says, this is the purpose I came into the world to bear the truth that I have a kingdom, that I am a king and that it is not of this world. <clears throat> we need to realize that when we say things like Jesus is Lord, you know, we see these on big signs and, you know, cars. Maybe do you have one on your car, Roger? Jesus is Lord anywhere? Probably do. I'm guessing somewhere. <laughs> it's a political statement. It's not his name. You know, it's it's a title. It's a title of rulership. It would be no different if I went around. Roger should put this on the back of his van. Jesus is president. You know, we think that's kind of funny sounding, but that is what it would have sounded like to the ears of people of the early church. It was a political statement. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying I am no longer part of this kingdom. My my allegiance, I pledge allegiance to the king, Jesus now, not. And, and how do we know that? Um, look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And verse um, seven. So. 
these these Paul and what was it? Uh, I don't know if it was Silas, but um, Paul and somebody came into their town and they were they were like, yeah, it says Silas. They they did not want him in their town. They said these are the guys that are turning the world upside down. We don't want these people in our town. And so they came to Jason because I think they were staying with Jason. In verse seventeen, they said. Um, Let's see, I have Acts, Acts 17, 7, sorry, go back up. Whom Jason has received. He's led him into his house. And then watch what it says. And these do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. What are they doing against the laws of Caesar? What do they say? Saying that there is another king, one Jesus. When they said Jesus is Lord, they were saying there was another king. All Caesar wanted them to do was just say Caesar is Lord. That's it. Just say Caesar is Lord and we won't persecute you. They were taking a death sentence on when they said Jesus is Lord and they were claiming there was another king. Okay, so we know that Jesus was a king. We know that his kingdom started with John. What about the second one? People, citizens. Let's uh, turn. Well, I don't have a I'm not going to go to the past. I'm just going to tell you. I'm sure you know about the parable of the sower. You remember when Jesus told the parable of the sower with he said there was a field. A farmer went out. He planted good seed in that field. Up came the good seed, but what else came up? Tears. tears, weeds. And the servants came and said, what should we do? Should we rip out all the tears? Can you imagine going out and pulling out every tear in the field? You, some of you do that with your spot spring. I guess you're not so uh, like Jesus. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> that was a side note. But um, so he says, that, he says, no, just leave them all. They didn't have chemicals back then, probably. Uh, he said, leave them all till the time of harvest. And when the time of harvest comes, we'll harvest them all together. Now, his his uh, his apostles were disciples were very curious about this. So they came to him and they said, what is that parable mean? And he said, the field is not America, not Israel. It was the world. The seeds were the children of the kingdom and the tares, the weeds were the children of the wicked one. You see that right there. We already know where the people are is what. And it also helps us think about this a little bit, too. Where are the boundaries? The field was the world. The boundaries are the world. It's no longer a certain geomet, uh, geographical location. <clears throat> Furthermore, Paul says we are citizens in heaven. Our citizenship in King James, it says your conversation is in heaven. I encourage you go look at the Greek word. That means citizenship. Uh, it's an old English word, so we sometimes lose it, but doesn't mean, you, you know, you're talking in heaven all the time. Uh, it means your citizenship is in heaven. <clears throat> Paul says that we are uh, strangers. Peter says we are strangers and foreigners. You know, when somebody comes from. Iraq. And he says here, we say he's a stranger. He's a foreigner. We don't think of him as an American citizen. We think of him as an Iraqi. When you're a stranger and a foreigner, you're no longer of this kingdom. You're passing through. <clears throat> Colossians. Everybody turn there, please. Chapter. This is a great verse to remember. When you're trying to decide, is the kingdom of God happening now? Paul is writing to this to a Gentile church. And he says this. Jesus, speaking of uh, actually, I think he's speaking of God. The father has delivered us. He's 
he's delivered like, like you know, these Navy SEALs who go in and they, they, they capture out of somebody that's in bondage over in Iraq or something. Some American soldiers, he's come in, he's delivered us out of what? The power of darkness and has translated us, put us on a plane, you know, over to America, brought us over to what? The kingdom of God. So right here and now, whoever professes to be a Christian and who's fervent for the Lord and has the spirit of God in them is been translated out of that kingdom and been translated into the kingdom of God. And we are in it now. We have to remember that, that it's not just something of the future. There is a fuller um, expression of it coming, but we are in the kingdom of God now. We have been translated right now into the kingdom of God. Dean Taylor, in his book, uh, highly recommend it, um, Change of Allegiance. He tells of a story when he was an American soldier. He was over in Germany and he was an American citizen. He said, we watched American TV. We listened to American songs, you know, and but they were in Germany on an American base. Okay, but when he would leave the base, he would be in Germany. He said, yeah, you know, we would go buy something and we would pay the German taxes And when we drove somewhere, we would obey the German laws. But the idea of becoming like, let's go get the the, let's go fight the politics for the local burgomaster over there. I don't know if that's their local governor or what, but let's get involved in German. He's got a task. He's an American soldier. He's a citizen of a different kingdom, a different country. He doesn't get involved in all of the. The politics of Germany, he stays involved in the politics of America. And so in the same way, we are citizens of another country. Okay, so then we have a domain or borders. Uh, We already talked about Matthew 13 and the tares. The field was what? See if you remember. The world. Where's our border? Where's our domain? Do we have any geographical place like the, 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 the state of Israel? Israel had a place. It was a physical nation. Is our kingdom physical? No. And it has laws. This last one here, laws. Hebrews 1 says this. God in the past, back in the Old Testament, he spoke to us through prophets. But now in these last days, what do you think it says? He speaks to us by what? His His son. He doesn't speak to us by prophets anymore anything that's why jesus is called the word of god think about that he everything he said is god's word and therefore everything he says we do we do we have laws jesus told his followers you are my friends if you do whatever i command you he said um if you obey my commandments you shall abide in my love <clears throat> so we have laws Let's turn to Matthew 19. I know this is a typical divorce verse. And, you know, that's the thing we struggle with in our society today is the concept of divorce and remarriage. But I think this verse, I was recently um, talking to a young man about. And he was trying to convince me that nothing has changed, that um, Jesus was simply trying to. um, To bring us back to the original intention of the Mosaic law. And this verse, to me, of all verses, I think disproves that idea. Um, Let's look at Matthew chapter... Did I say 19 or 13? 
Okay, I'm mixing up. I'm looking at different places here. 19 is right. Okay, 7 through 9. So they have asked him, the Pharisees are cornering him, and they're talking about divorce and remarriage, and divorcing your wife, actually. And um, they say, why, Jesus, you know, why, if you say that you can't do these things, then why did Moses allow it? Great question to put Jesus in a corner. You know, are you teaching something different than Moses? Why did Moses allow us to be divorced and remarried? And watch what he says. Verse eight, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, it was not so. I think one thing we have to realize as we are studying this two kingdom concept is what was Jesus trying to do by setting up a new kingdom? Now, there are different models and I'll try my best, but we'll (laughs) draw a little line here. We'll put... Garden of Eden. And we'll put this line here to say the fall. And we'll put this cross there. And we'll put this period of time here, the law. And now we have the kingdom of God. Remember, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He said, whoever is least in the kingdom of God is greater than even John the Baptist. So... What was Jesus trying to do? Now, if we believe... I'm going to drive the same thing again. Garden of Eden. And the fall of man. And the law. And the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus also said the kingdom of God was going to start off as a little mustard seed and grow. So, was Jesus trying, as some would try to say, come back here... And reinterpret or rebring us back to the focus of the law? Or was Jesus in the kingdom of God, this new kingdom, trying to do something else? You tell me by that verse. The one we just read. What does it say? What a young man, what does it say? Okay, so which one of these models, one or two, are we talking about? Number two. That's why it's important to see the kingdom of God as something that started here. Actually, let's put it like more like here. Wherever John the Baptist was. See, if we put it, some people teach that the kingdom of God has always been going. Let's just put it here. And Jesus was simply just coming and bringing it into its reality. But that distorts what we're learning. The kingdom was the law and the prophets were until John. Now the kingdom of God is being preached. In this verse it says, from the beginning. This gets us into a little sneak peek what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to bring us back to this point in time. And I think we have to understand that. Let me ask you this. Were there governments in the Garden of Eden? I sure don't think so. Before the fall. Were, were uh, people speaking different languages? No. Were, were uh, people going to war against each other? No. Did animals kill animals? Well, death hadn't happened, right, until the fall. And so what is assumed? Maybe even lion lay with lambs. What is the prophecy about the kingdom of God? 
They shall go to war no more. The lion shall lay with the lamb. Do you see what 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 we're seeing? The picture here. We're not trying. What does it say about the law? The law was added because of sin. We're not trying to go back to some afterthought. You know, added. Because we're trying to go back to God's original intention of the Garden of Eden. His original intention for the purpose of man. And we have to get this concept of what his kingdom was about. Jesus told us now, because of this new kingdom he was setting up, he told us to seek it first. Seek first the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean... um, Seek first and then seek everything else. That means seek in preeminence. That means while you guys are out farming, you're seeking the kingdom of God. And that means when Roger's doing his bookwork, he's seeking the kingdom of God. And when Glenn's welding, he's seeking the kingdom of God. And when my wife is making a meal for the family, she's seeking the kingdom of God first. Everything as a citizen of God in God's kingdom, in this new kingdom, has to be through that lens, seeking and building his kingdom. <clears throat> I have a um, thing I want to put up on the board here. Two depictions of the kingdom of God. Now, we have to understand these two mentalities. This, I will call it the, I will call this the early church And then later, the Anabaptist mentality of the kingdom. And then I will call this the Augustinian Protestant, which we have learned in the last week. We learned a lot about history. We didn't listen to that. Go listen to history. And this depicts the two concepts of the ideas of how the kingdom of God interacts. We know about the kingdoms of this world. And it's outlined with pure black. They're called the kingdoms of darkness. Remember, we've been translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, the the children of light, right? That's what we're called. This is a kingdom of light. This model shows them intersecting. And this I want to show as the idea of us somehow trying to bring the kingdom of God through local government, through civil government. The original question Glenn asked was, Preach on separation of church and state. Is there a separation or do we try to bring the kingdom of God in through the kingdoms of darkness? I don't know if you don't realize this yet, but the kingdom of America, the the nation of America is a kingdom of darkness. The devil has as much control over it as he does other nations. It's not like it's something that's somehow more godly. Um, And I want you to notice this mix right here do you notice the color change when the two come together there's a mix going on there and i think we need to think about that as we ask this question can christians vote can christians get involved in government can christians go to war and defend their government there's two mentalities The Anabaptist concept of the kingdom was there are two kingdoms. One is the kingdoms of this world. The other is the kingdom of God. And the two cannot mix. Jesus prayed, I pray that they will be in the world, but not 
of the world. Many of you have jobs. You know, my wife was saying this morning, how, how do we not, you know, we got to cook food? Still, well, Jesus ate food. Jesus had people cooking food for him, you know. But they are in the world, but not of the world. Now, my question is, everything we've ever seen where kingdoms have tried to marry together between the kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of darkness, what have we seen? Has it furthered and brought in the kingdom of God? It has, it has always failed. It has not ushered in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is made up of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God is made up of mercy. Remember when, when, when the woman was caught in adultery? And Jesus was standing there and they said, Now you must stone her according to the law. What did Jesus have? Did he stone her? He had mercy on her. He didn't even do what he originally told these guys to do at Mosaic Law. He said, I'll have mercy on her. He said, go and sin no more. That is what the kingdom of God is made up of, is mercy, peace. He's called the prince of peace. Forgiveness. Are these not all things that are made up of the kingdom? How many times did Jesus tell us to forgive somebody? 70 times 7. <clears throat> Nonviolence, embracing suffering. Jesus left us an example that we should walk in the steps to, to take suffering. That's why we're called long-suffering. So my question is, the kingdoms of this world, what is, what is their makeups? Fighting. Vengeance. Returning evil for evil. <clears throat> Anger. Pride. And the sword which kills. These have diametrically opposed values. They cannot mix. It's like water and oil. You put two, the two together, they cannot mix. Jesus said, it. you can turn there. Mark chapter 8. I actually have never realized this until I think I was listening to Dean Taylor preaching. And I thought, wow, interesting. It's in verse 15. Mark chapter 8, verse 15. Jesus says, And he charged them, talking to his disciples, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. Now, did you get that? We all know about legalism. We know all about Pharisaicalism. But did you get the second part of the verse? Beware of the leaven of Herod. That's the political civil system. Herod was a political leader. Do you know what leaven is? You take a small little dough, a small little thing of dough, and you put some leaven in it. And what does it do? It impermeates, it spreads through the whole dough, and then it starts to change its appearance. It puffs it up. Um, it appears bigger than it really is and doesn't even look anything like it originally did. Leaven. That's what leaven is. Leaven is a picture of sin. Beware of the leaven of Herod. In other words, we have to be careful about civil government just like the Pharisees, right? Herod had leaven and so did the Pharisees. <clears throat> Turn to Second Corinthians 10. 
Now, just keep hanging on. We're almost done. We're going to read. Remember, I promised you at the beginning of the series, the guy that dropped the bomb, the, the guys that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the priests that went with them and blessed them. We're going to read this in just a minute. And we're going to read what the Lord showed him through all of that. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 10. One of somebody read that 10 verse four. Second Corinthians 10 four. Do we believe that? That our weapons are not earthly, but they are mighty? What are some weapons? Give me some weapons that we've learned in this series or that you already know of weapons that are mighty in God. Hmm? Overcome evil with good. Love. Yes. Okay. Prayer. The early church said, we can't go fight for you. Mr. King, because we need to be praying. You wouldn't be having this peace in Rome if it weren't for our prayers. What else? Humility. Humility. Holiness. They also said that the early church said we have to devote ourselves to being holy. Compassion. Compassion. These are mighty weapons. The problem is the second we do this, we become deluded. And many times it takes years to realize the dilution that happened. I know down in Belize. Now they look back and realize how much they've lost their passion for the Lord. But it came in through them getting involved in their local governments. And now they're mayors and governors and all these things down there. And even, I think, have their own police force. Mennonites that once stood for this. And whether, I don't know that I'll have time, but... I found this article from the 1500s. This is an article from an Anabaptist from the 1500s. And it's the two kingdom theology. And amazingly enough, he goes through and he says. Um, he talks about God making a covenant with Noah that vengeance should be had. He talks about the sword being ordained of God. But then he talks about when Jesus came, a new kingdom came. And get this, at the very end of his article, after he presents this whole kingdom, how they cannot mix, how the two kingdoms are diametrically opposed, he says this statement. He says, The church of God and of Christ has been obedient to the teacher's word and has never had the power of government within it, nor has it called upon this power to place the hangman, or the, the sword bearer, beside them, but always suffered persecution until the reign of Constantine. Do you hear that? The Anabaptists in the 1500s said at Constantine, something changed. <clears throat> he was baptized by Pope Sylvester, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, whose coming took place through the work of the terrible devil. They saw all those prophecies as this. Uh, therefore, he received the name Christian falsely. For the Christian church was thereby transformed into the anti-Christian church. And although this Babylonian whore lives vilely and shamefully in sin and abomination and follows a devilish doctrine, it is nevertheless called the Christian and apostolic church by supposed Christians. And he's talking about the Catholic church who had been using the sword and had been disobeying Jesus' teachings. Um, I'd highly recommend, if you want, I'll leave this article for you to read if you want. I have two copies of it. For those who would be interested. <clears throat> I'm encouraged by. So the question is, how much involvement should we how as Christians should we be seeking this kingdom, the kingdom of God? 
You know, it's not about a list of don'ts. Thou shall not do this. Thou shall not do that. It's about, I know at the beginning we talked about, is this just a negative sermon? But this is a positive sermon. This is about the kingdom of God. This is about what every person's passion in this room should be. I think we said it last week. If your passion is not for the kingdom of God, then what's driving you? Is it the spirit of God? Because the spirit of God drove Jesus passionately for the kingdom of God. What is your driving force? You know, you think of the Moravians. Their driving force was to set up communities. And they had they had they had butchers and they had uh, blacksmith workers and they had people that would build with wood and they had cooks and all these things. One was called Bethlehem right there in this in this country that they would send their missionaries out. They were setting up mission stations around the world preaching the gospel and they were building the kingdom of God. They were passionate about it and everything they did was through the lens of serving in the kingdom of God. The early church, they used to take, the Romans would take babies when they didn't want them. We all, have, we all deal with abortion today. And they would take the babies out side of the city and they would just leave them to die. Not the early church, but the Romans because they didn't want them. It was called infanticide. And it was accepted. It was an accepted practice, just like today. Abortion's an accepted practice. You know how the early church dealt with it? They got involved in government. They took votes. They made petitions. They became governors. No, they didn't do any of that. You know what they did? They went out to the outskirts of the town and they brought the babies in. They went out and brought them in. And they brought them in. And within a 100 or 200 years, the Roman Empire changed its laws on infanticide. Because the church was being a conscience in front of them. It wasn't pushing, legislating righteousness on people. It was living righteously. It doesn't work to legislate righteousness on people. So, I'm going to read you this here. But I just want to end it with this, this series that was all interesting stuff about the history and Anabaptists and, and what they believed. And we can just look at it as, well, we can't go to war and we can't um, vote and those kind of things. And if that's all it is, it's really done nothing. The concept here is we have to see what this is all about. It's about, it's about the songs we sang that Benjamin picked. It's about the kingdom of God and, and building that kingdom. And the reason we don't get involved is because we don't want this. We want to remain a pure bride. We want to remain a pure testimony. So let me read you this. It's called Blessing the Bombs. Now, this guy was the guy. He was the Catholic um, chaplain in the Air Force. And he served as a priest for the airmen who dropped the atomic weapon on both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Days later, he counseled an airman who had flown a low-level reconnaissance mission over Nagasaki shortly after they detonated the fat man, the, the bomb. Now, remember, the guys flying the planes were Christians, right? And it was one of the biggest Christian populations in Asia that they dropped it on. So, Christians fighting Christians. Which just reminded me, I really want to say something. But, yeah, I have to say it. Sorry, but we're going to back up here because I totally skipped it. I read a quote from David Berceau before we go on with this reading that said, 
can find it fast enough here. If a foreign government ordered an American to fight against and kill his fellow Americans, now think about this, most Americans would refuse to do so. If Germany called you up and said, hey, Timothy, I want you to go kill um, the guy down the street. They're a threat to us. Most Americans, even non-Christians, would never do that. However, if an earthly government orders a Christian to fight against and kill his fellow Christians, most professing Christians will do so. Our ultimate allegiance cannot belong to two different kings. When a Christian kills a fellow citizen of God's kingdom simply because some earthly ruler has ordered him to, he has acknowledged that his ultimate allegiance belongs to his earthly ruler and not his king. You can't serve two masters. So this guy, I'm going to read it right here. This is his message. It was on the 40th anniversary of the bomb. He said this, the destruction of civilians in war was always forbidden by the church. And if a soldier came to me and asked if he could put a bullet through a child's head, I would have told him absolutely not. That would be mortally sinful. But in 1945, Titan Islands was the largest airfield in the world. Three planes a minute could take off from it around the clock. Many of these planes went to Japan with the express purpose of killing not only one child, or one civilian, but of slaughtering hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of children and civilians. And I said nothing. I never preached a single sermon against killing civilians to the men who were doing it. I was brainwashed. It never entered my mind to protest public, publicly the consequences of these massive air raids. I was told it was necessary, told openly by the military and told implicitly by my church leadership. I struggled, I argued, but yes, there it was in the Sermon on the Mount. Very clear. Love your enemies. Return good for evil. I went through a crisis of faith. Either accept what Christ said as unpassable and silly as it may seem, or deny him completely. For the last 1700 years, the church has not only been making war respectable, it has been inducing people to believe in it as an honorable profession, an honorable Christian profession. This is not true. We have been brainwashed. This is a lie. War is now, always has been, and always will be bad. Bad news. I was there. I saw real war. I'll pause there. I asked Pete one time, Pete Lewis, why are you non-resistant? What convinced you? You know what he said? I saw war. <clears throat> that was enough for him to believe the teachings of Jesus. So he says that here. Um, I assure you, it is not of Christ. It is not Christ's way. There is no way to conduct real war in conformity with the teachings of Jesus. There is no way to train people for real war in conformity with the teachings of Jesus. The morality of the balance of terrorism is a morality that Christ never taught. The ethics of mass butchery cannot be found in the teachings of Jesus. In just war ethics, Jesus Christ, who is supposed to be all in the Christian life, is irrelevant. He might as well have never have existed. In just war ethics, no appeal is made to him or his teachings because no appeal can be made to him or his teaching. For neither he nor his teacher teaching gives standards for Christians to follow. 
The world is watching today, the church. Ethical hair-splitting over the morality of various types of instruments and structure of mass slaughter is not what the world needs from the church, although it is what the world has come to expect. What the world needs is a grouping of Christians that will stand up and pay up with Jesus Christ. What the world needs is, a, uh, is Christians who, in language that the simplest soul could understand, will proclaim, the followers of Christ cannot participate in mass slaughter. He or she must love as Christ loved, live as Christ lived, and, if necessary, die as Christ died. Loving one's enemies. For the 300 years immediately following Jesus' resurrection, the church universally saw Christ and his teaching as nonviolent. Remember that the church taught this ethic in the face of at least three serious attempts to buy the state liquidator. It was the subject to horrendous and ongoing torture and death. If ever there was an occasion for justified retaliation from the church and defensive slaughter, whether in form of a just war or a just revolution, this was it. Yet the church, in the face of heinous crimes committed by Rome, committed against her members, insisted without reservation that when Christ disarmed Peter, Remember, he said, put your sword away for all who live by the sword. When he disarmed Peter, Christians were also disarmed. Christians continue to believe that Christ was, to use the words of an ancient liturgy, their fortress and their refuge and their strength. Christians understood if they would only follow Christ in his teachings, they couldn't fail. When opportunities were given for Christians to appease the state by joining the fighting Roman army, we read about this, these opportunities were rejected. <clears throat> because the early church saw a complete and an obvious incompatibility between loving as Christ loved and killing. It was Christ, not, I, I don't even understand the statement, not Mars who gave security and peace. Maybe somebody understands that. But today the world is on the brink of ruin because the church refuses to be the church. Because we Christians have been deceiving ourselves and the non-Christian world about the truth of Christ. There is no way to follow Christ to love as Christ loved, and simultaneously kill people. It is a lie to say that the spirit that moves the trigger of a flamethrower is the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. It is a lie to say that learning to kill is learning to be Christ-like. It is a lie to say that learning to drive a bayonet into the heart of another is motivated from having put on the mind of Christ. Militarized Christianity is a lie. It is radically out of conformity with the teaching, life, and spirit of Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, on the anniversary of this terrible atrocity carried out by Christians, I must be the first to say I made a terrible mistake. I was had by the father of lies. I participated in the big ecumenical lie of the Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox Church. I wore the uniform. I was part of the system. When I said Mass... I put on the beautiful vestments over my uniform. And as Air Force chaplain, I painted a machine gun in the loving hands of the nonviolent Jesus and then handed this perverse picture to the world as truth. I sang, praise the Lord and passed the ammunition. As Catholic chaplain for the 509th composite group, I was the final channel that communicated this fraudulent image of Christ to the crews of the Enola Gay and the boxcar. All I can say today that I was wrong. Christ was not 
Christ would not be the instrument to unleash such horrors on his people. Therefore, no follower of Christ can legitimately unleash the horror of war on God's people. Excuses and self-justifying explanations are without merit. All I can say is, I was wrong. But if this is all I can say, then I must do, feeble as it is. For to do otherwise would be to bypass the first and absolute essential step in the process of repentance and reconciliation, admission of error, and admission of guilt. I was there, and I was wrong. Yes, war is hell, and Christ did not come to justify the creation of hell on earth by his disciples. The justification of war may be compatible with some religions and philosophies, but it is not compatible with the nonviolent teachings of Jesus. I was wrong, and to those of whatever nationality or religion who have been hurt because I fell under the influence of the father of lies, I say with my whole heart and soul, I am sorry. I beg forgiveness. So, I end that with, may we be about God's kingdom. May we be about being like Jesus. May we be a light to the world and really show his kingdom by, just like Jesus was, he loved his enemies. He, he preached the kingdom of God. He didn't, when they tried to make him a king, he fled. But he instead built the kingdom of God through God's way. Let's build the kingdom of God through God's way. Let's ask God to give us a vision for that kingdom. Thank you.